Like there's never a time when you're done learning. Mm. There's never a time where you've reached the top and you're like, okay, my work is done here. And I think um, there are certainly successes and achievements to be celebrated. But I try to remain open to the idea that I do not know everything. I do not know the best way to do everything. And that I should try to be as open as possible to new ideas and new perspectives. Yeah. Um, because they're just going to make, they're just going to make my ideas stronger, hopefully over time. So never, never stop learning. Welcome to the Driven Woman podcast, where career and business women operating in traditionally male dominated spaces come for advanced conversations to accelerate their journey towards success. You'll be inspired to abandon all paradigms around money influence lifestyle and achievement so that you can create your own rules i'm your host sophia bryan international lawyer and leadership coach for women are you ready to unleash the leader within let's get into today's episode so my guest today she is the executive director of the women's flat track derby association <laughs> i got it right got it uh, <laughs> She earned a Master's of Science in Sports Business from Temple University. This has helped her shape the version for infrastructure transformation in the WFTDA as the organization continues its mission to improve and grow the sport of roller derby and build out services for the community. She is involved in equity-based and trauma-informed community development in one of the nation's hardest hit areas by the opioid epidemic. She's also served on the board of directors for Philly Roller Derby for more than six years. She served as an announcer and an official skater, as well as a coach for Philly's junior program. Welcome, my guest, Erica Van Stone, a.k.a. Double H. That's me? Yes. (laughs) Try saying WFTDA five times. You just did it. That was perfect. All right. Awesome. So, Erica, uh, one of the things that I love to do is to ask my guests to share a little bit about their childhood and how it's informed what they're doing today. Oh, wow. Um, Well, that was a long time ago. Um, (laughs) No, I I grew up in um, the late 70s and early 80s in the middle of Massachusetts. And um, my family, uh, I I think it was part of probably a lower middle class that maybe doesn't even exist now, Mm. you know? Um, And so we, we were somewhat poor, but I didn't ever really know that because I think that we were pretty privileged, right? Like we had a big garden and we had a roof over our heads. And so that's thing, I think those are things that a lot of people don't have. And so, um, very quickly, as I think a lot of youth do when growing up in rural areas, I wanted to see the big city. And so my idea was to uh, move to New York City when I graduated from high school. Um, And then when I moved to New York City, um, I experienced kind of like a um, I guess a revelation about the world that I really hadn't had in the middle of Massachusetts because Mm. it is primarily in Massachusetts, like a 
a white middle-class community. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's really all, you know, and so, um, but I knew that I wanted to know more and I knew that I wanted to see and experience more. And, and so um, I think it was only by getting out of that was I really able to grow, you know, like I, I'm not sure where you where like if you grew up in rural Jamaica or if you've always been in Kingston. But I think if you're in rural areas, it's really hard to understand what the world is actually like sometimes because it's <laughs> it's so different from what you know growing up mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I grew up in Kingston so I'm a city mm. girl yeah uh, but uh I actually have a lot of friends that came from rural Jamaica into Kingston for the purposes of uh university and yep they're how we relate to each other is very different from someone that was born here. And, yeah. and so I can appreciate what you're saying. It's almost as though you're culture shocked. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and especially for us in Jamaica, rural people are known to have more conservative values, more yes. reserved, more yes. homely. <laughs> and to come to Kingston where, yes, uh, we are still very, you know, spiritual let me say that but then we speak our minds we're not so (laughs) concerned about uh making every single person feel uncomfortable people say what's on their minds and it's it's a little different for someone from the opposite environment to adjust to that so I I have an understanding or appreciation for what you're saying folks who know roller derby um who are maybe a generation older than me will remember roller derby from the sixties and Mm seventies. And it was a lot uh, different than the version that we are playing now um, or that most people are playing now. So basically um, the Seltzer family uh, created Leo and his son, Jerry Seltzer had Mm -hmm. a, primarily Leo had created this version of a sport, which was very much like you're saying, like football or wrestling on skates. Mm -hmm. And it was paid, it was played on these big banked tracks with these railings and they would construct these giant uh, bank tracks in arenas. And then they would host like these giant events. Um, The interesting thing about those events that I think still informs what we're doing today is that they were mixed gender. They, Mm, so it's really like, I would say earlier roller derby and uh, wrestling are sort of two of the only places where you see um, folks of any gender competing together in a sport. Mm. Um, That's not typically what happens in the rest of sports, right? Um, so what I think really is cool about that is that it, it kind of gave roller derby this idea that like gender is meaningful to mm-hmm. the extent that it, um, it can help further opportunity. Okay. Um, for example, women's sports, I think are a place where, um, you know, are, is very under, under-resourced, underdeveloped, um, lots of folks, you know, when in the, in the U S when we talk about equal pay, um, we're seeing like the U S national soccer team, uh, 
who are women not not getting the same pay contracts that mm-hmm. men do. So I think that there's some there's some learnings that uh, the Women's Flat Track Derby Association took out of early roller derby. But around the early 2000s, um, a group of women kind of got together and said, well, it's really expensive and complicated to put these tracks together all the time because mm-hmm. a bank track can cost maybe 30 thousand dollars or more um and then that then you have to break it down bring it somewhere put it back together so uh this group of women just kind of got together and said well what if we take some chalk (laughs) in a parking lot and we make essentially the same shape and that that's really um in austin texas that's kind of how um flat track was born and then it it kind of grew out of that and I, i do think in in the early 2000s it started very much as a um as an extension of what bank track was which and still is to some extent um a very different kind of fast paced, um, crowd forward sport. And we kind of took the rules and made it a little bit more athletic. Mm -hmm. And so it's less about like you, we, we instituted rules for safety. So you're not going to see anybody punching each other or, (laughs) or tackling each other. Um, there are penalties in the same way that there are in hockey, Um, And the basic premise of roller derby or flat track is that um, there's a point score on your team who is kind of the quarterback and the running back at the same time and the ball uh, called the jammer. And the jammer Mm -hmm. has a star on their helmet. And essentially the very basic is that the jammer's job is to try to pass opponents And so you're scoring points for the number of opponents that you pass at any given uh, trip around the track. So that's the very basics of it. So you have to tell us how you came by the name Double H. Do I? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) E.G. So I think that... um, uh, really, we we choose names in roller derby. Okay, and it is. I think in the beginning, in the beginning of the flat track mm-hmm. uh, part of the sport, it was a way to re envision yourself and mm. recraft yourself. Okay, um, and so to go back to your point about the Caribbean, I do think that your your spirituality and. Um, it is something that is is very woven into the fabric of the communities in the Caribbean, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, not that the United States is like a godless place by any means. Yes, but, there's but, a sign that says in God we trust. Right. <laughs> but I do think that, um, you know, there is a wave of feminism that I think has a lot to do probably with privilege as well in mm-hmm. the United States. Um, and so I think the names in particular uh, are a place where women were able to, in the early days of roller derby, step forward and say, I want to be this person. I don't want to be myself anymore. Mm. I'm on this track. I'm going to do something completely different than I've ever done before. And mm. so therefore, you know, as an extension of that, I'm going to choose a name. Um, and so I won't tell you what it is, but I will <laughs> tell you that I chose a name that um, 
early on seemed funny and tongue in cheek. And then the okay. further, and then three weeks later, I realized that I was pregnant with my, with my son. Interesting. So I, I reconsidered and decided that most people shorten my name to double H anyway. So mm. I just decided to call myself double H and actually before the pandemic, I decided that I was just going to skate in 2020 under my last name, Vanstone. But okay. then, then the pandemic came. <laughs> Is it that you do not feel connected to the name anymore because you've yeah. grown? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think it's because I've given myself permission to be that person yeah. anyway, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So now that we've gotten to know a little bit about you, I want to speak to you about your leadership journey, because based on your profile, you would have sort of climbed through the ranks, so to speak, and you found ways to add value outside of being the executive director. So what was that journey like for you? Was it strategic? Did you always envision yourself in the position that you are now? Or it's just um, a coincidence or natural progression based on your journey? Mm -hmm. Um, I I think that a journey is a really good way to put it because I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't think that it ever really ends. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it is a constant process of learn, learning about yourself. And Mm -hmm. um, I, I did not, I did not uh, pick a target and Mm -hmm. head for it. I guess the thing that I feel like since you're, you're talking about driven women, the mm-hmm. thing that I felt driven or compelled to do was create the broadcast program. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a place where I felt like my vision was needed and potentially useful. Um, when I came into flat track roller derby in um, 2007, I had just left New York City in the last decade and moved to Philadelphia and had gotten involved in film and television and broadcast. And um, when I walked into roller derby, um, a couple of my friends were participating in a game and I said, yeah, you know, I really wish I knew what was happening in this game. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so it went from, it kind of started there as a desire to understand what the heck was going on and then built out into this vision for how we could use broadcast as a tool Mm -hmm. to promote and share the sport in a way that it wasn't being done at the time. So I... And, and I wasn't also uh, driven to be like the director of broadcast. It wasn't even about the role. It was about the program and the work and where it could get us. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt like broadcast was always a vehicle for spreading the sport globally. Um, and then I was hired to be the director of broadcast because we realized that it was it was so important to the um, organization or it became so important to the organization that they wanted to make sure that they had a staff position. Okay. So uh, I actually, I had been doing the job as a volunteer for free for several years and then had to apply for the job as a staff member, (laughs) but I did it. You know, I said, all right, this, this is what you want to do. I'll apply for the job. 
And then in 2015, my executive director um, at the time, Juliana Gonzalez, who was a, a mentor to me, uh, decided that she was going to move on from the organization. Um, and we brought someone into the organization from outside the sport. Uh, and I think that that was pretty challenging for the organization overall is to, I think the, that um, aside from being a nonprofit organization, mm -hmm. um, the WFTDA or roller derby in general tends to be a very insulated community mm -hmm. right. <laughs> in some ways, you know, I think it's, it's a subculture. And so I think coming from outside of that was really challenging for the previous executive director. Um, and then when she left, I, I stepped forward to the board of directors immediately. And I said, and I, again, this wasn't something that I was like, uh, I had, I was interested in the job, but I mm -hmm. also just knew, I knew that if the organization spent more time looking for another human who might also not work out, that it was going to, that it was going to put the organization in more jeopardy. Mm -hmm. So I stepped forward and I said, let me be interim yeah. for a while, see how it goes. Let's try to figure out what this job actually needs. And if it's me, awesome. And if it's not me, that's okay too. So I did the job for about a year as an interim. And then the board of directors said, uh, no, we feel like you're doing a good enough job. If you want the job, we would like to have you stay. Mm, wow. So I that's a journey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love what you said where you contemplated what the job actually needed. So it was more about serving and achieving the highest good rather than, you know, furthering your own personal agenda or personal goals, so to speak. So um, that's pretty commendable. And um, I think that's a really great perspective to look at leadership and uh, when we're seeking out opportunities to, to further our careers. So I really like that point and that's definitely going to stick with me. Hi, Driven Woman. I'm interjecting here to let you know that come June 1st, 2021, I'm launching the Driven Woman Leadership Circle. This is an exclusive 90-day coaching experience for elite women leaders who want to experience more. More money, more influence, a curated lifestyle that brings them more joy and more achievement. This experience will allow you to design and execute your own version of humanity and lead fully. I'll be hosting a private call on Wednesday, May 19th, 2021 at 6 p.m. Eastern to discuss more about this experience and how you can be a part of it. Simply email sophia at sophiabryan.com with the subject Driven Woman Leadership Circle to join the call. If you'd like to have a conversation with me immediately, you may also send an email asking for my calendar link to book a clarity call. So as the executive director, what are some of the challenges that you faced so far and what have you done to overcome them? Oh, wow. So roller derby is a community 
that is aspiring to be as inclusive and diverse as possible, Mm -hmm. um, but also recognizes that we are kind of um, born out of privilege, right? Like there, like I was saying before, um, you know, white American women, I think hold a lot more privilege than they really realize. Mm -hmm. And so the journey for the WFTBA over the past few years has been coming to terms with that Um, and understanding where, um, where we're kind of holding others back from being able to join us. Mm -hmm. Um, So for example, um, our gender policy, I think is um, not, you know, not as good as it could be, but it is certainly way more inclusive than other sports. Okay. Um, and so, for example, we are um, dedicated to trying to provide equity for as many um, as many folks as we possibly can, including uh, transgender women, including non-binary um, participants. Uh, and then also realizing that we have uh, community members of color who have not been as welcome um, as they could be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that takes place at the league level as well. Um, so we have over 450 clubs around the world. And so those clubs are kind of how we um, exercise our values. So making sure that all of our clubs are kind of following our values and our code of conduct is really important. Um, And then um, the next sort of phase of what we're doing has to do with making sure that we understand what the barriers to entry for the sport are. Because if we're trying to grow roller derby um, around the world, then, you know, a soccer ball is a much easier find for most people in other parts of the world than a pair of skates and a helmet Mm -hmm. and pads and gear. Yeah. Um, So we realized the economics of playing roller derby is also a challenge for folks um, around the world. Um, And then that doesn't even like, so those are the baseline things that we're looking into. And that does not even extend to the competitive pathways that we're trying to shape. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're taking a look at um, the regions that we're growing in developing roller derby worldwide and trying to figure out if it makes sense for people to do as much traveling as they had been doing Mm -hmm. just to participate in our playoffs or our championships events um, which, by the way, are all canceled this year because yeah. we're in the middle of a pandemic. So um, take all of that and then add a pandemic on top of it. <laughs> and then that's what we're working on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wanted to dive into the racial dynamics a little bit more. Uh I'm not sure if you've encountered a sort of we against them sort of dynamic and uh, if you've observed it and what are some of the things that you have been doing to try to avoid that we against them. So people of color wanting to participate in the sport versus people who are, are not <laughs> who are yeah. white and um, how has that played out and what are some of the successes you've had? and maybe recommendations that you can share with other persons um, in the sports arena that may be dealing with that sort of challenge as well. Yeah, well, we've the only reason that we've been able to have 
successes, and I can't necessarily call them successes, but um, progress maybe is the mm-hmm. best way to approach it. Um, is because we've made some mistakes. Okay, <laughs> you know, like yeah. we've, and but I think um, I look across the sports landscape and I see that sports organizations are so afraid of making mistakes mm-hmm. that they're that they won't even try to create policy. Yeah, um, and so my my statement to them or the lesson that I have in that is that you just you have to start somewhere and you have yeah. to try. Yeah. So. Uh, we've realized that, um, you know, we've had issues on the track and off the track in terms of discrimination. Mm. Um, but we have to, um, we have to constantly push back. And I'm thinking in particular of an event. Um, we, we have hosted our playoffs events, uh, typically in the United States, but also in Europe from time to time. Oh, wow. Interesting. And the last playoff that we, one of the last playoffs that we had was in North Carolina, um, which tends to be a place uh, that is very discriminatory towards um, the LGBTQ community and also um, tends to be very racially charged. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I can think of a time in particular where um, we had members of the venue staff security. In particular, there was one gentleman who showed up um, with his for for not really any good reason that we could find other than he was um then he was a member of the security team who took it upon himself to show up with his truck that had a confederate flag on it why Um, and so we and, and was present at the back entrance where the skaters were coming in and out and um our tournament manager and i went or the tournament manager at the time sue nally uh we had a conversation about it she went right up to the venue management and said this guy's gotta leave right now and they asked him to leave but it was um so there's the external that we have to manage. And then there's also the internal that we have to manage where um, we have all kinds of implicit biases that we're just not great at spotting mm-hmm. in, you know, in, in white America. And some of us, I think, are really good at ignoring it. And so what we're doing is trying to lift that veil of... Um, you know, white privilege and say, okay, so we have instances where announcers um, are looking to use better language and maybe make mistakes, or we have um, officials who um, potentially might be calling out penalties. And the way that our officials call penalties is by color and number. And so we had instances where officials were using skin color and not uniform color. Um, and so what we've done is we've, we've just stepped forward and spelled out what people have to start doing to stop these types of uh, behaviors and how they can make the corrections. And so mm-hmm. we've created an official policy for what to do if you do that. Mm-hmm. And we've created an announcer apology and, and inclusion policy so that if you do say something that is not um, 
welcoming or is downright offensive that we're examining that and making sure that mm-hmm. folks are looking at their language because language matters. Yeah. Um, and then our code of conduct is uh, really working hard to spell out where we do feel like discrimination is very specifically um, around populations of color. Um, and then we're tr- we have created these uh, really phenomenal accountability partnerships with groups in our community, um, because as you can imagine, with with any um, I guess subculture you could call us, there's groups within that sort of lobbying for greater equity. Mm-hmm. So we we've sat down um, in particular with. Uh, groups like Team Indigenous, which is um, made of skaters from around the world um, who are part of Indigenous communities okay. um, and have, have had to and continue to fight colonialism. Um, and so those types of partnerships, I think, really help us take a look at where we're failing communities of color. And, and we're by no means there yet at all. But just starting with those types of meaningful steps, I think, can can help us see where else we need to work harder. And you just have to start somewhere. Yeah, I agree. And I think also uh, acknowledging that there are issues is a really good place to start and letting people know that, okay, we see the issues, but we're also creating space for solutions to come up because these issues aren't going to be solved overnight. And I feel too that sometimes offensive jokes, quote unquote jokes, uh, sometimes they can become a part of the fabric of a culture. And it's not until the person who is at the butt of the joke says something that it becomes apparent to everyone that this is problematic. And so creating space for that is a really good um, place to start. And um, I really applaud you and your team for seeing the need to actually establish a policy. Uh, Do people actually read it though? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's what's what's great is that we have a community that keeps us accountable and yeah. they hold us mm-hmm. accountable. And I think that's the other challenge for some of these sports is that, um, like, you look at the you look at football, you look at the National Football League mm-hmm. in America, and um, they they don't need to make changes because their community doesn't demand it. Like in their minds, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like they don't see the need for it if there isn't a a customer base there that's demanding it. And I think in some ways, because we've developed outside of a lot of the commercial um, systems, right? Like we don't, we don't have Gatorade as a sponsor. We don't Mm -hmm. have um, corporate interests, I think in our sport as much as the, professional sports do. Because of that, we are able to make decisions that better reflect our community because our community mm-hmm. is coming forward and saying, hey, this this can't happen this way anymore. This isn't right. You need to change it. And and we're, we're doing it because we need to, first of all, because it's the right thing to do. And second of mm-hmm. all, it's because it's what we all believe is the, it's what we all believe is the right thing to do. Awesome. Um, thanks for sharing that. All right, so my next question to you uh, is what do you see as 
the vision for a flat track roller derby within the next five years. Well, all being that COVID-19 doesn't yeah. spoil, <laughs> spoiler fun for 2021, but what do you see as the ultimate vision for the sport? Yeah, I would say step one, survive the pandemic. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, well, what's interesting is that the pandemic has actually because we can't have our events this year, it's given us a good opportunity to, to take a step back and figure out, we have, uh, we created a three-year strategic plan mm-hmm. last year that we were really excited. This is our 15th anniversary, by the way, the Women's Flat Track Derby Association mm-hmm. is celebrating its 15th year in the midst of uh, the coronavirus pandemic. Um, so we had a strategic plan, um, and the good news is that the, the pandemic hasn't necessarily changed it. We've just looked at um, accelerating certain parts. So, for example, we are, um, we're a sport, but we're also, uh, the WFTDA is a membership organization, um, and we've needed to overhaul our membership portal for a long time. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that we're working on. Um, then we are sitting down to make sure that we um, are uh, creating educational resources for our members. And so some of the things that we are working on now is um, finances because we have clubs, we have over 450 clubs around the world. And some of these clubs are really good at budgeting and making projections and uh, producing events. And then some of them are not necessarily as good. Mm-hmm. So we're taking the time to kind of sit down and make sure that our members have the resources that they need to be successful. Um, make sure that they have all of the educational materials that they need to learn the sport, to safely participate in the sport. Um, and then we, speaking of safety, we are, have also been working on a bunch of safety initiatives. Mm-hmm. So like a contact sport. And the other, the other thing I think that maybe makes us a little bit different than like the NFL, <laughs> not to use the NFL as the bad right, guy in it. all of my <laughs> examples, but um, I think because they're so wrapped up in sort of the capitalist structures of mm-hmm. uh, American commerce, they are not as inclined to want to really dig into concussion data or uh, injury data because they don't, they don't want to talk about how dangerous their sport is or could be. And because roller derby is an amateur sport, we feel very strongly that um, we want to understand the risks that people are putting themselves in by playing our Mm. sport. So we have started, um, we started last year with an injury survey where we went and tried to figure out what injuries people were reporting over time. Um, and how those were changing with the ways that our rules were changing. And what we, what we found is that um, some pretty meaningful data that suggests that we could be making the sport safer over time with the rules changes that we're making, which is exciting. And then um, this year before the pandemic, we were planning to, and then once, once the pandemic is over, we will resume. 
we were putting together uh, an impact study with a data sensor company uh, named Tozuda. And essentially, we were studying the physical impacts that the body is uh, taking on when you're playing roller derby. Um, so we're, we're trying to really study um, and, and make as safe as possible the sport. Um, and, and that's all before we even get to fans. Mm, right. <laughs> so um, we're trying really hard. I, I guess it's one of those things where it's like, um, you got to know yourself really, really well yeah. before you go out there and try to sell yourself to the world. I think that's kind of the, the place that we're in right now. So mm-hmm. I would hope that over the next five years, uh, we would have achieved that so that we can really focus on taking roller derby outward to mm. a community who might not know as much about us. Right. Cause I was going to ask you uh, if you ever see yourself going quote unquote mainstream uh, and maybe take on sponsorship or, you know, if that would ever be something that you'd be willing to pursue. Yeah, absolutely. I think the challenge has been that we've gotten opportunities pushed at us but we've we were we're being at the time like um a lot of those opportunities came with compromises Mm. that we weren't comfortable in making um and so for example we worked with espn for some years and um they came to us and said we would really like to televise your championships event um would you be interested in um in doing that. And we said, of course, we, we absolutely would. And so we put uh, a lot of money, a lot of time and money into putting together a really beautiful broadcast. Um, and they had some, I think they had not really taken a strong enough look at what we were already putting out on their streaming platforms. Yeah. Um, and they came back to us, you know, a week before we went into production and said, yeah, we decided we're not going to stream you live because we're wow. really, we're really nervous about some of the names that your skaters are wearing. Mm. So we spent all this time and energy um, and they really felt like they hadn't spent the time to kind of take, to really honestly take a look at who we are and, and they, they kind of presented themselves as already having done that and believing in us. And then they came back to us and kind of had changed their minds. So um, I think we, we want to make sure that folks understand who we are yeah. when, when they come in to partner with us. And I think we just weren't willing to make some of the compromises they were asking us to make with, with names or with uh, the sport. And I think when we find the right partners, that's going to be a different conversation. So yeah. it, it's, it's also a matter of us finding the right partners instead of bending over backwards to accommodate mm-hmm. folks and take what we have that's so special right. and changing it. 
Right. It's so interesting. Whenever I do uh, leadership development trainings, core values, uh, that's always a starting point for me. But people tend to almost roll their their eyes when you say, okay, let's decide what your core values are. People are like, oh, this is this is so boring. This is not interesting. And it's, I say to them that you don't realize how important this piece of leadership is until you're in a situation where you have to actually yep. rely on your core values to help you make that decision. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you have, your team is so resolute about who you are and how you want to be represented and that you are not allowing the desire for more money, more fame, etc., to allow you to compromise. And I'm sure you'll get there, you know? Yeah, um, I, I think that you're right. And to anybody who would tell you that core values are boring, um, I would say that knowing your core values is such a useful tool because like mm-hmm. you're saying, when you have hard decisions to make, it takes some of that pressure off because you've already right. just, you've already decided what's important for you or your mm-hmm. organization, and so you don't you don't have to go through that struggle of having to right. decide on the exactly. Exactly. All right. So I know that, uh, well, I imagine that fitness is a very important part of your life. Uh, Do you have to find other means of taking care of yourself after you play the sport? Or do you find actually playing the sport a part of your self-care process? That's a great question. Um, And it is a little bit of both. Okay. Um, So I would say... uh, what I think I and a lot of my community members have learned in the pandemic um, is that roller derby for us has been, um, first of all, I have a fitness app and my fitness app is like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Why, what, are you, are you okay? Um, and so I, I after I, um, I, I do have to say this, after I gave birth to my son, mm-hmm. I was diagnosed with um, high, high blood pressure. Oh, wow. Um, and so I had a couple of other uh, risk factors that I came out of that, de- that, that delivery room with. Um, and, and, you know, I have thought that I had tried to do a reasonable job of taking care of myself up until mm-hmm. that point. Um, but when I got involved in skating, um, I was an announcer and then an official and then a skater. Um, when I started skating, um, my blood pressure lowered dramatically. So for me, I realized that it was offering me a level of, uh, cardio and fitness that I had not been able to achieve before. And so like, uh, you know, we have pretty intense practices. You're on roller skates, you're skating, you're trying to knock other people over or out of the way, and you're trying to stay standing yourself. And the amount of cardio fitness that it requires in addition to um, strength training is pretty substantial. And the further in you get to the sport, the more that that can be true. Mm-hmm. So um, I felt like I had reached... Um, in, I had found in roller derby a way to maintain a level of physical fitness that I had not um, before that time. But I also appreciate that um, as the executive director who also plays the sport, 
it's important for me because I am always worried about the organization. And the only time I'm not worried about the organization is when I step on that track and I'm worried about stopping an opponent. Mm. (laughs) So the mental, like when we talk about self-care, that would be like, you know, maybe six, 10 hours a week, depending on how much practice I would go to that I didn't have to think about Mm. the stressors that I would typically be thinking about. So it was really beneficial for me in that way as well. And so I just, I I can't say enough about what it's done for me in those capacities. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So for women who are thinking about pursuing a career in sports, uh, especially sports where, uh, the fan base for women's participation isn't so high, or maybe there are some issues that women particularly experience, what advice would you give to those women? Uh, I I really think that I've been doing a lot of thinking about this because I've also been, aside from working in women's sports, the other sports experiences that I've had have all been men's sports. Um, And I think back to a time when um, I was an announcer for baseball, actually, a minor league baseball team. And um, the opportunity that was presented to me was, uh, you know, we're really excited in moving you from um, like a, a, uh, what they call the PA announcer. So the person mm-hmm. in the ballpark who's calling the lineups and doing the promotions in the park, which is very fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then they were moving me to a broadcast position. And one of the things that they said to me was, you can do, we're excited to have you do this position because it means you could do everything except the interviews Mm. and we can't have you do the interviews because you would have to go to the clubhouse and the, the players and the coaches don't feel comfortable having you there. Um, and so that was a moment, that was a moment where I think I could have pushed back, Mm. but I was afraid to, because I was afraid to lose that opportunity. And I, I think looking back, knowing what I know, there's no opportunity that's worth you that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So my advice to, to women who are interested in getting involved in men's sports is don't put up with that. Don't, don't look the other way just because it's what everybody tells you to do or what everybody's doing, because that's how change doesn't happen. Right. Um, now, two years later, that that league folded. (laughs) So so in many ways, uh, you know, the universal wheel of fortune worked out for me (laughs) better, but, um, you know, I, I see where the industry holds women back and I, I see where the industry is afraid of women. So they hold women, they're afraid. And, and I understood and I came to understood to understand after a while that some of the choices that were made around me were because folks just weren't sure how I was going to react to certain yeah. situations. Yeah. Like they didn't want to put the men in a, in a position where they were going to harass me. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a real, instead of, instead of setting up a system where they sat down and talked to the players and the coaches and said, 
you know, this is unacceptable for you. Like Erica is going to come in, she's going to do the interviews and it's going to be this way. Instead of creating a safe environment for me, they took me out of the equation. And I think it created a situation where you're not creating that change that needs to happen. And so Mm -hmm. I would say women who are coming in, don't be afraid to try to push for that change because without, without you, that change isn't going to happen. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. All right. Uh, I'd love for you to share with us uh, what's the best advice you've received and the worst advice you've received, whether it be as your role as executive director or your roles or your life prior to getting involved in sports. Wow. Uh, that's a, I, hmm. I think, I think some of the, I don't know if it's necessarily advice, I guess in some ways it's advice, but I think any time that our community has had challenges around Mm -hmm. um, issues of discrimination or, Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, uh, mission or values related things, they tend to be very public conversations. Okay. And so, um, I think anytime folks have come to me and said, don't worry about it, you're doing a good job. Like those are, those are the pieces of advice that that I tend to react against and say, Mm. well, that's a really privileged perspective. (laughs) Like you're telling me not to worry about it, but I typically don't have to worry about it because I am a cis white woman in America Mm -hmm. and I, I have a good amount of privilege. So I think, Um, folks who have come forward and said like don't worry about it just brush it off I don't know I I don't know if that counts as advice but I typically listen to that and you know my response is uh, actually I disagree with you (laughs) I am gonna worry about it because it's my job to worry about it Um, and so in terms of some of the best advice that I've given or best advice that I've gotten, um, I think it's not necessarily advice, but mentorship that I've seen hold true. And um, when I came into film and television, it, it was a really challenging industry because you're working um, sometimes 15-hour days for really yeah. long stretches. And I think... Um, that work ethic has actually really served me pretty yeah. well. Awesome. And like being the, being a, I guess a person in a position of leadership, who's not afraid to pick up the phone and call somebody and ask for something or who's not afraid to do the work themselves. Um, that typically is how I feel like I do my best work. Cause I've yeah. had, I've had mentors who are that way, who are not, do as I say, not as I do, but who are actually doing the work on the ground, making mistakes along with everybody else sometimes and not afraid to step forward and be accountable for it. So don't, don't be afraid of doing the work, embrace the work because that's, that is a, often a place where, where you can provide some mentorship for other people. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you a lot. All right. So is there a personal mantra or model or quote or saying that you live by? Wow. That's another really good question. 
I guess if I, if I had to be pressed for one, it's, it's that, um, like there's never a time when you're done learning. Mm. There's never a time where you've reached the top and you're like, okay, my work is done here. And I think, um, there are certainly successes and achievements to be celebrated, but I try to remain open to the idea that I do not know everything. I do not know the best way to do everything and that I should try to be as open as possible to new ideas and new perspectives. Yeah. Um, because they're just going to make, they're just going to make my ideas stronger, hopefully over time. So never, never stop learning. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. So my final question, uh, Erica, is what keeps you driven? I think I have a couple things that keep me driven. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you mentioned in the beginning that I coach juniors and yeah. um, they are definitely one of the things that keep me pushing forward. Thinking about the sort of world and culture and sports that we're creating for those kids. Um, I, we've had a pretty difficult year. I, I work, um, I, I coach in my local Philadelphia league. Um, mm-hmm. and we've, we've suffered a lot of tough losses this year. We lost one of our skaters, um, wow. who was just, um, I think had just turned 16, um, to some mental health related issues. Wow. Uh, and that was a really difficult challenge for me. But the thing that kind of kept me going through that was the fact that the community, that the kids were just so um, supportive of each other and uh, giving and accepting of each other. And we have um, kids in our program who are non-binary. We have kids in our program who are um, or have been in a a place of transition. We have um, kids in the program from lots of different philosophies and backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And when they step on that track, all of that goes away. They're teammates mm-hmm. first and first and foremost. And so the vision of that, <laughs> it seems maybe part- particularly lofty for sports, Yeah. but I've seen it. So I know it can happen and I know it exists and trying to create a world where that's possible is what keeps me driven. Nice. Cause I know how important it is to these kids and I know, I know what it can do. I know the minds that it can change and cultivate and develop. And so it's, it's worth it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Driven Woman podcast. If you received a value from this conversation, I encourage you to share it with a friend and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews allow other driven women to benefit from the amazing conversations that we have over here. Follow the show on Instagram at Driven Woman Podcast and on Twitter at The Driven Woman Show. Until next time, stay driven.